Nostalgia is a funny thing. It has a habit of taking you by surprise. A smell, a sound, a sight can set off a stream of memories, like suddenly opening an old box you've forgotten you had at the back of the cupboard. There's a bitter sweetness to it as you remember times past, your childhood, a first love, a journey you made, someone who was part of your life. As we get older, these memories come back to us more clearly. They allow us to put things in perspective, understand them in a new way. They're important and powerful feelings. The French writer Proust famously built seven volumes of narrative triggered by the taste and smell of a madeleine a small, plain sponge biscuit. How very French that it was food that set off this torrent of words. But for nations less inspired by food, fabrics have an important role. One that's often unappreciated, partly because we see these curtains, this pattern, this sofa every day, and we take it for granted until later, when a chance encounter with the same pattern or cloth can set off almost overwhelming memories. And there's one kind of democratic fabric that seems key to inducing powerful nostalgia in almost all of us. And that's the fabric of public transit systems around the world. One writer calls them the madeleines of our journeys. Somehow they seem, without our conscious knowledge, to burn their way into our minds. And it really does. And, it, and to me, it brought back waiting for the train, hoping it was one of the, what we call the proper trains, which was, of course, the train with, with, with the separate corridor where you got into the compartment, where it had those lovely sort of sofas where, where six or eight at a squeeze could sit. There they were. That that's in my memory. That was sort of was they were they bluey green with a hint of red, but it was the feel of the moquette. It was that slightly velvety feel when you touched them, which of course, as a child, we were forbidden to do. But there they were. That lush velvet. Closing my eyes, I can still see the sunlight rushing across them. If you hadn't didn't have anyone sitting next to you, you had those shadows and the sunlight literally cascading across. So when you suddenly think of that and you think of those moments from childhood, it's vision, it's it's touch, it's it's all of those senses that completely catapult you straight back to where you were as a little child getting on that train. That's Ashley Gray, an expert in 20th century textiles, on how the fabric on the trains he travelled into London on as a child made him feel. Welcome to the second series of Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. I'm Jo Andrews, a hand weaver, interested in how all kinds of cloth speaks to us and the impact it has on our lives. Each of these episodes takes an emotion and unravels how we express that in textiles. This episode, which is the last in this series, is called A Feeling of Nostalgia and looks at the role fabric and design plays 
in laying down our memories. Each of us, depending which form of public transport we used and in what era, will have a reaction to different patterns. From Blackpool to Berlin, from Los Angeles to Lahore, a particular type of fabric has been used in buses, trains, trams and metro systems. It's called moquette and it's that slightly tufted plush fabric that comes in a multitude of patterns. No one is more committed to this fabric than the British, where it is ubiquitous, especially on London's buses and tubes. This is about the district line D78 moquette, which is a nice warm colour, oranges, black, mustard, um, and it's very popular. I was looking at a display of this maquette in the LT Museum when a chap of about 50 came up with his young son. All the buses I took as a kid had that on the seats, he said. It reminds me of going home from school on the 294 and all the girls from Francis Barsley School taking Mickey out of my purple blazer. I couldn't work out whether he was addressing his son, who was with a little boy, or me, but then I realised he was actually speaking to himself, lost in a nostalgic reverie a maquette can so easily trigger. Andrew Martin is one of a number of people who are, in the nicest possible way, obsessed with moquette and the different designs that have been used down the years. In Andrew's case, this is the result of being the son of a railway man, with a very special freedom granted to their families. My dad worked on the railways in York. I grew up in the privileged position of having free first-class railway travel, and I could go anywhere in Britain first class, and I would do from the age of about 12 on my own. I would come from York down to London, say, uh, or just go up to Scotland if I, if I was bored. And so I spent a lot of time in, in, in what were then compartments, not uh, open carriages. Uh, so sort of staring at, um, at what I didn't know at the time was called maquette. The one that I most remember was the one that used to be in first class compartments on the London to York service. Uh, it was black and grey check. I think it was the first-class version of a blue of a maquette that's normally blue, and was known as Straub, the surname of the woman who who designed it. But it appeared as charcoal and uh, grey in first class, and uh, you can see that at the beginning of the film Get Carter, because Michael Caine is travelling from London up to the northeast, and he's sitting on um, on first-class Straub maquette. And it's very elegant and very simple, this black and grey. And if I see that now, I'm just transported back to my childhood. Unusually for a child, Andrew noticed the patterns on the fabric and the quality of the fabric itself. Well, because I could go into first class, I did notice being a little snob. I, I always thought the first class ones were better than the standard or second class ones. And I noticed that the standard ones were often... Blue. Uh, I'm not very keen on blue as a maquette colour. Blue just seems to be the default colour. And blue is a chilly colour very often, especially pale blue. And yet now all London buses seem to be, you know, they're, they're usually pale blue. I find it very dreary and depressing. Uh, so I like the first class ones, which tended to be warmer, richer and darker colours. Andrew has spent his life writing about public transport, both in fact and fiction.
Recently, he published a wonderful small book called Seats of London, a field guide to London transport maquette patterns. It's a mine of wonderful information. During the Second World War, Londoners had to do without their maquette seats and put up with wooden ones. London Transport has more than 400 maquette designs in its files. A good maquette lasts 10 years. That's 10 years of relentless use. People eat, sleep and in some cases die on this stuff and it survives it all. You do feel you want to sit down in it and you want to linger there. I think ideally on a tube train, you, you don't want to get off the train. I often have that feeling. I find it quite hypnotic. You know, that's soon disrupted if somebody is shouting in your ear or playing music too loudly. Um, but if it's fairly tranquil, then it's it's really nice to just sit there. And so in fact, sometimes I do. I used to, before the pandemic, just sometimes get on the tube and just think, get off when I felt like it, you know, just go around the circle line. Andrew says Moquette first became popular in London in the early 20th century. Well, Moquette came in in Edwardian times. It's hard wearing. It looks nice. It holds you into your seat. It has a, it has a tuft or a pile which grips you to your seat, which is useful in London because London is very old. And especially around the city, the tube, for example, the lines twist and turn to follow what is basically a medieval street pattern. So you've been thrown around a lot where you're not ripped in your seat by the cat. That's one thing. But it just looks nice. It's luxurious. It's good. And people came to expect it. And before London Transport, there was competition between a number of different bus and, and railway companies. And they they were competing. So they strove to provide a good customer service, I suppose. And that meant maquette. The first moquette seemed to have been dingy and brown, a bit like London fog. But then as London transport took shape and moved into its heyday, Frank Pick entered the scene. Oddly, Mr Pick qualified as a solicitor. He later became the managing director of London transport in the 1920s. But he had an eye for design that was second to none. Frank Pick is the man behind the famous London transport red and blue roundel and the elegant 1920s and 30s stations like Piccadilly Circus. He believed the public deserved good design on their trains. Here's Ashley Gray, our expert in 20th century fabrics, who knows this kind of public design is important. I think it matters enormously to the quality of, of what we're seeing. The critical thing, though, is to remember that before 1938, all these designs generally came straight from, the fa from, from factories. The design wasn't so effectively f thought through. And it was the genius of the likes of Frank Pick when he was appointed to, to actually want to see something that fitted in with the spirit of modernism that was building at the time. And that's what began to draw these extraordinary designers in. And they were fresh out of art school um, and, and some well fresh out. I mean, Marion Dorn, who was known for her uh, Art Deco rugs, one of which sold at Sotheby's in New York uh, two years ago for an incredible sum of money. These were 
real fine designers. Well, it became the people's art, to my mind, these wonderful designs. So bringing these designs out into our everyday lives. Otherwise, they were really just the, you know, the, 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 the playthings of the elite. But suddenly, what you had is this change where we had this sort of this access to um, in our everyday lives to things of, 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 great, of great beauty. But there was a story I read recently that did amuse me, which was, I think it could have been Enid Marks who was traveling um, on the London Underground. And, and funnily enough, it was one of her designs that was on the, in the carriage. And she overheard two ladies chatting, saying, oh, lovely designs, aren't they, aren't they beautiful on the, on, the, on the seats? And they nodded and said, like the colors, and they, they, they thought it was marvelous. And then there was a little quiet. And then one turned to the other said, yes, lovely but I wouldn't want it at home. And Enid Marks laughed outright. <laughs> Frank Pick often chose green for his bus and tube moquettes because he thought it represented the countryside and he believed Londoners deserved a breath of fresh air. He matched it with red because to him, red represented the city. So many of the early designs were red and green, and so many of the early designers were women. One of the best known was Enid Marx, cousin of the man who invented communism, Karl Marx. It's always amused me that while Karl scribbled away about freeing the masses from their chains, it was his younger cousin Enid who actually did something practical that brought joy to the lives of millions of Londoners down the years. Enid was born in 1902 and she wanted to be a painter. Well, I think it was tough. And, and I mean, go back a little bit further. She'd gone to the um, Royal College of Art and she'd gone into the painting school. And her work wasn't considered to be up to scratch by the staff at the Royal College. So she was basically forced out of the department and went to work on the design side, on the textile side. Now, how ironic is that? because during that time, she's taught by the war artist, Paul Nash, and he actually names her in his article uh, for uh, Signature Magazine, um, which became known as the Outbreak of Talent article, and that included Edward Barrett, Borden, Revilius, but Enid Marks was, was there. So, you know, it, it, it's so fascinating. Real talent in the end, breaks through and we see that um in, in in spite of prejudice and in spite of all of this and it took somebody as extraordinary and as versatile as as, as marx to be able to overcome that and enid marx overcame it in a remarkable way she not only designed some of the best known and loved fabrics for london transport in the 30s and 40s designs like shield and chevron bell size and bushy. She went on to become one of the first people recognised as an industrial designer. Initially, these designers were often seen as the poor relation of the dress and fabric designers. But Enid Marx's hand is behind so much of the design vocabulary of 20th century British life. I wanted to underline this extraordinary character Enid Marks, because for, for me, um, she was completely the, the, the backdrop or the underlay 
of, of, of childhood for millions and millions in Britain without them ever knowing it. And when one thinks of what she achieved, and it was shown so beautifully in an exhibition in 2018 um, at the House of Illustration, it was called Enid Marks, Print, Pattern and Popular Art. And you walked in and you saw pattern papers from the 20s, block printed textiles and moquette from the 30s, utility fabric from the 40s, curtains, laminate from the 50s, um, textiles from the 60s, illustrated books, stamps from the 70s, and suddenly you recognise things that took you straight back to childhood. And you saw things that, that are, you know, the Christmas stamps that she'd designed. And I even fell across the most extraordinary thing. There were the 1941 um, Chateau and Windus publication of Marcel Proust à la recherche de temps perdu, remembrance of things past. Those beautiful designs with the fleur-de-lis, the powder blue, the hint of red. And when I saw the books there, and I remembered my father having them in, in, in a little hallway at, at home in my home in Kent, dark little hallway, there were those beautiful books, with those beautiful designs. I had no idea that they were done by Enid Marks. And the amazing thing with her was that you could go to an exhibition and be transported back key moments of your childhood through the touch of a fabric, through the cover of a book, and literally down to a stamp in the corner of an envelope. Now that is design genius. And in a sense, it is the very ordinariness of these fabrics and their setting that seem to give them their power. It's the very fact that it's part of the sort of the, the utilitarian moments of life. We've focused on A to B and, you know, we might be going shopping or we might be going to, I don't know, to the doctor or something. Um, but actually, when you think back on the journey, it's that subtlety of, of the fact that it was the backdrop. It was the backdrop of what was there. And yet it's only when you think back, and it's a very clever design that actually immediately attracts your attention. And I forget the name of it, but there was one fairly recently in the last, certainly in the last sort of five, 10 years, which is the one that showed the London Eye uh, in the design. And I can still remember getting on, seeing that design for the first time. And it was so clever that it stopped you in your tracks. And in a way that was something that Moquette never really, never really did. But that design, which was based on the earlier tradition, had something so contemporary in it, that just for that moment, he registered it was there. All the moquettes for London Transport and for so many of the transport systems around the world, including Los Angeles and Berlin, were traditionally made by one company in West Yorkshire. John Holdsworth is nearly 200 years old and it's been making furnishings for buses and trains for over 100 years. Today, Holdsworth's is still making moquettes, although now it is known as Chimera fabrics. And they're still made in the traditional way, largely from British sheep's wool in a remarkably complex weaving process. Sarah Mallinson started working for them in the mending department when she was 17. Over 30 years later, she's one of their top transport designers. It's produced on looms using jacquard weaving techniques. Uh, the pile is made up of 85% wool and 15% nylon. Um, we have two types of loom. Um, we have face-to-face -face looms, 
this is where two fabrics are woven at the same time. They're woven as one um, while the pile yarn moving from the top to the bottom and then a knife cuts the two fabrics in half. This cutting is what creates the pile. Uh, then we also have um, the Metex looms, which just weaves one piece. Uh, it only produces the one layer of fabric, and the pile is made by inserting wires across the fabric, and the pile yarn loops over the top. So if the wire has a blade, the loop is cut, thus producing the pile. Um, and if there is no blade, then the loop remains. Each moquette is colour-tested fire-tested and put through abrasion tests. The fabrics are rubbed by machines at least 80,000 times just to check they can stand up to the wear the public inflicts on them. The company has produced the designs for London's new Elizabeth line, regal purple with grey, cream and a dash of red. They're also working on the fabrics for the Deep Tube Upgrade programme, including, thank heavens, the first air-conditioned tube destined to go into service in 2027. But it's not just London where buses and trains wear British wool. It's trains and buses in Istanbul, Sydney, Prague and in a number of American cities too. Sarah says she can usually tell the difference between the designs chosen by each culture and each city. I think the designs and the colours do make a, a lot of difference. We've seen a lot of change. They've gone from garish designs to more subtle, uh, more conservative at the moment. We still do loud, uh, colourful ones for different areas. They are very different in the, the different areas. We work um, with America. America used to take a lot of graffiti designs and because they've got a lot of influence now from Europe, um, they've gone a lot more conservative. And when she goes abroad, yes, one of the first things she does is to get on public transport and check out the moquette. It's a nice feeling because you've been a part of it. At my Two girls think I am crazy because um, we'll go places and I'll say, oh, that's our so-and-so design. And it's like, mum, you're absolutely mad. But no, it's, it's nice to see it. You see it all around the world. It is, it's lovely. In recent years, the habitat of Moquette has been expanding, a bit like a bird taking advantage of climate change. It's not just to be found on public transport anymore. It can be spotted in all kinds of unexpected places. Everyone has a maquette that they want to hug. The one I want to hug is the Los Angeles Rapid Metro, which is a very vivid, vibrant one. Uh, but uh, You see people coming along, they've got no engagement rails, and they'll go away literally hugging a cushion, and that is just a joyful moment. Marcus Mayers calls himself a railway person at heart. This began as a small child and has never left him. But as well as a love for trains, he says the seat fabrics indented themselves on his brain and all his happy times were spent surrounded by the stuff. Roll forward some decades and Marcus, facing self-employment, saw that Moquette offered him an opportunity. And I realised that 
there's a market out there for people who love trains. At this point, I was only looking at trains. And their wives, because it's normally men who are into trains, so I hope that's, that, that, that's an okay thing to say, their wives don't mind incorporating bits of their husband's love into their house, but they certainly don't want a dirty, great, big, oily cog on the front room table. So I thought, well, what if, what if you made things which were reminiscent of railways, which would be appropriate for a modern house? And as a result, I just went off on a, a merry-go-round and started getting into the textures and the, um, the different colours and all the amazing things you can do with maquette. It started with just the railway buffs, but now it's gone far wider than that especially when he takes moquettes to shows where people can see and handle them. So there is a pattern for everybody. And when I go to these shows, I normally find that there's a number of uh, probably ladies, again, this is a bit of stereotype, sometimes male partners, um, who are trudging around somewhat bored. And their faces light up when they see the store and they'll come and they spend half an hour while their, while their partners go off and look at trains and things rummaging through because they love the patterns they love the texture the fact that it's got uh, lines in and grooves in and you can engage with your eyes shut and then there are the memories marcus is a man who hears a lot of stories like this oh my god i remember that i went to a party when i was 18 and when i was drunk i came home on it or that is the fabric i used to get on the bus every day to school too so all of a sudden it opens up this emotional memory that people have, this relationship with a past that they kind of forgotten existed, but it just opens up. So it's not so much about the maquette. It's about remembering the people and the experiences uh, and the parties and the heartache and the joy associated with formative years. He says there's something subtle about the impact of maquette. It doesn't matter what age you are. Over the years, you would have travelled on a lot of public transport. And you may not remember the maquette that you sat on. You might not remember the journeys per se, because you're all blurring to one. But when you hold, when you touch and you feel the fabric and you see the colours of the maquette, it reminds you of that era in a very tangible, contactable way because it's something which was there and you can touch and feel. And as a result, it brings back the memories that you associate with it. And that can be quite subtle. So it can just be that feeling of being a teenager again or the feeling of having to, you know, when you commuted to work every day. And there's something else surprising about Moquette another group of customers for whom it works. I get an awful lot of people, um, a lot of mothers in particular of autistic children. Uh, and autistic, there's a strong, always been a strong correlation between autism and railways. So for the mothers to be able to give their children a piece of uh, their favourite train it is brilliant um, because it's the kind of thing they can hug, they can hold, the smaller items they can put in their pocket, it keeps them calm, it's replaceable. Uh, I get some really nice emails and responses from families uh, who have kids who, who love trains and have other learning issues. Uh, and I think that's one of the things I'm really passionate about is um, it helps connect them, helps them keep them in reality. And I get so much joy out of that bit of the market. So wherever you are, on a bus, a train, 
a coach in Sydney, Dublin, Chicago, London, Los Angeles, Delhi, Wellington, Prague or Berlin. Have a look at what you're sitting on. It's remarkable stuff with a story that goes back nearly 200 years to the dawn of the railways. It might be, in Marcus's words, the moquette you want to hug, that special one that brings back memories, that produces a feeling of nostalgia. Here's Andrew Martin, author of Seats of London, on his favourite design. Maybe the tartan that was on the old um, Routemaster buses. The Routemaster was like being in a, in a rather slightly rackety gentleman's club. You felt that you should be lighting up a cigar, which probably some people did. And it was just so mellow and so warm. And the bus from the outside looked so attractive because of the maquette, because of the sort of yellowish, foggy lighting. You know, it's like a lantern moving through the streets of London and you want it to be in it. Thanks to Andrew Martin and Ashley Gray, to Sarah Mallinson at Chimera Fabrics in West Yorkshire, and to Marcus Mayers at Shed Number no. 2 for sharing their knowledge and their wisdom of this curious corner of tales of textiles. You can find pictures of some of the moquettes we've talked about in this podcast on the website at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash listen, where you will also find a full script of this episode. This is the last episode in this series. But before I sign off for the Northern Summer, I wanted to thank all of you who have supported Haptic and Hugh and invested in Series 3 by buying me a coffee. I've been overwhelmed by your generosity and all of you will own a piece of the new series, which should start in September. I hope you will enjoy your investment. Meanwhile, all the past podcasts are available on the website and I will continue to add to the bookshop, which remains open. Thank you for your company, your suggestions, and most of all, for listening.